So uh, Russ is going to come teach. It's going to be a short message, and we're looking at uh, the passage, Ephesians, specifically Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 this morning. Uh, so would you welcome up to the stage one of my favorite people, Russ Davis. Uh, as Kevin said, it is going to be a bit briefer talk this morning centered on relationships. My goal this morning is to give us a few principles to walk away with that speak to uh, how we can live out in our small groups and in this community uh, a real true relational way that uh, Paul outlines in the scriptures. Uh, as you can see in our particular section, the one that uh, Sarah read this morning, there are many ideas related to relationship. Uh, and in many ways, what Paul is describing is the center of relational life for the people of Ephesus. Um, Paul if you could describe it this way, it takes the beauty of the gospel, takes all that we've been reading in the first section of the letter, and he says you've been called, you've been loved, you've been adopted, you've been chosen, you're mine, and out of that may you live into healthy relationships. Out of that may you express love to one another. And really the center of the passage is relationships. We are, as you know, created for relationships. From the beginning of time, the very way in which we have entered the world is all about relationships. Dr. Alan Stone makes this statement, all humans are born to form attachments that our brains are physically wired to develop in tandem with another's through emotional communication even before words are spoken. It is as if God has created us, not as individuals unto ourselves, but as participants in a world, we are created for one another. And we, I would suggest, come by this naturally. And the reason I say that is, relationship has always been a part of the eternal God. From the very beginning, God existed in Trinity, God existed in relationship, there's a mutual love, a mutual support, a mutual encouragement, and a relational union. And it is out of that union that God created mankind. And so when God created Adam, it is said at the very beginning that it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to not be in relationship. See, relationship was such a part of the DNA of God that God created humans, and he created them to be relational in his very image. And what's fascinating about that is that Adam was lonely at the beginning of time, not because he was imperfect, but Adam was lonely because he was perfect. Adam was lonely because he had been created in the very image of God, and God is a relational being. And this morning, we're going to look for us to be in relationship. I want to give a few principles. So if you have your Bible and you look, Ephesians uh, really 5 verses 21 all the way through 6, 9 will outline some of these uh, principles we'll look at this morning. Uh, number one, and we'll go through these quickly. Number one, all relationships should be based on our relationship with God. Every relationship that you are a part of should be based on your relationship with God. It should be at the center of who you are. It's as if your very relationship with God drives 
all other relationships that you're a part of. And even as a follower of Christ, the the very fact that you uh, have Him front and center in your relationship demands then that all other relationships, all other horizontal relationships find their strength, their purpose, and their beauty in your relationship with God. And Paul seems to highlight this in chapter 5, verse 21. He says this, submit to one another, and with the key phrase, out of reverence for Christ, or in, in literal terms, in the fear or awe of Christ. That every relationship should be entered into with this idea that we would be in fear and awe of Christ. And in many ways, if we're honest with ourselves, that's what the entire scriptures point us to. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That we were created to love God with our absolute total being, and out of that to love one another. The second big idea we find in this text is my devotion to another is based on my devotion to God. My devotion to another person is based on my devotion to God. What Paul does in this text is he drives home by repetition this idea that the way you are committed to one another finds its expression based on your commitment or devotion to Christ. See it this way. He says at the beginning, submitting to one another, and then he lists for Christ, Doing this as to the Lord, we're in verse six or chapter six, verse one, to obey in the Lord, or to obey as you would to Christ. That we're to act as bond servants or slaves of Christ. That we're to do the very will of God, or as to the Lord. And the hope would be that we would receive back from the Lord what it is that we've already expressed to Him. And so you see that the devotion and the commitment we express to other people. It's based on the devotion and the commitment we express to Christ. And it's out of that devotion that everything flows. Third point for discussion and small. There is a mutual responsibility in all relationships. There is a mutual responsibility in all relationships. Some describe relationships, and maybe you've heard this before, as the space between relationships. That really, it's uh, this space between two people, me and another, or you and another, that defines what the relationship looks like. And so some uh, psychologists, some philosophers will talk about this relational space and describe it as a sacred space. A space where there's not only physical space and emotional space, but also this energetic space or this spiritual space in which we relate to one another. And that space between those two people is where we find our deepest intimacy. It's where we find our greatest connection with the other. And it's in that sacred space that each person is constantly, if you will, the kind of relationship That as I invest in a certain way in the relationship, the other person has a reciprocal investment to make as well. See, relationships, as we know, don't uh, just blossom spontaneously. They don't just happen of no effort. 
It's an intentional action on behalf of both people to weigh in to a mutual submission, to a mutual uh, responsibility in the relationship. Everything a person says or does, everything that they leave unsaid or don't do, all has implications on the relationship. All the effort we put in either builds up the support, the well-being, it strengthens the relationship, or it begins to weaken, erode, and pollute the relationship. All of us carry in each of our relationships this mutual responsibility to live for the other, whether at home, whether at work, in friendships. Any relationship you're in, it requires you to invest and to do so for the other, which takes us to our fourth and final idea. All relationships should be formed and driven by love. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, in the message it says this, Pour yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. What Paul is calling us to is a self-giving love. And you see it echoed in this passage again and again. It says to bear with one another in love, to speak the truth in love, to walk in love, to have husbands love their wives. And in all of this language, there is this understanding that all relationships should be driven toward and love. In fact, in 1 John, this is echoed. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that, he is, that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Our relationships should be driven by love. It is my prayer that this week we get into being a community that relates well, that mutually commits to one another, that takes responsibility for our relationships, and is driven by love. Let's pray. God, may we learn to live in a revolutionary way of love. May we experience and embody the very ways of Jesus. May we enter fully into our relationships this week. May we be a blessing to those around us and may all true relationships flow from our relationship with you. May we travel lightly. May we live simply. May we welcome one another in grace. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, new community, you guys can have a seat. Uh, So this is uh, my favorite part of the morning. It's the part of the morning where we do announcements, all right? And I've just got a quick announcement that I want to bring you all up to speed on. 
uh, our college population has been uh, a significant part of our church for a long time. And we have a lot of college students that have just recently graduated. And uh, I, th I actually know that for a fact there are a few in our community right now. So those who have graduated recently, please stand. All right. Let's thank them. Nice. That is our only announcement this morning. And uh, so now I get to transition into the morning, uh, part of the morning where we get to do the talk. So this morning is going to be a little bit different in that it's going to be a shorter message. We're going to be looking at uh, this kind of smaller passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. So uh, it's my pleasure to bring up one of my favorite people in the entire world, Russ Davis. Uh, we're going to jump right into the morning. If you have your Bible, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Uh, I'll read it for us. It'll be on the screen. You can just follow with me. Uh, it says this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will to the Lord, not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now, in this passage, Paul gives us what we described as his final instruction toward mutual submission. If you've been tracking with us the last three weeks, we've talked about uh, mutual submission in marriage relationships, mutual submission in uh, parent-child familial relationships, and this morning, he applies the concept of mutual submission to slaves and masters, and by extension, to employer and employee relationships, and so this morning... We're going to look at mutual submission in the workplace. As you know, work is a significant part of who we are. Regardless of uh, our work, our very first calling, given by God, was to rule and reign over the earth. We have the responsibility to subdue it, to care for the animals, to care for creation. We work with God. Designed to work, and in that work, our hope was to find meaning and purpose. We, as you know, would want to love what it is we do. And uh, regardless of the type of work you do, it has deep value and deep significance in the world. What I want you to do for just a moment is uh, pause and, and discuss this with your neighbor. I'll give you about 30 seconds. I want you to share with them the... Uh, maybe an odd job you had, or maybe your least desirable uh, space of employment, hopefully not the one you currently have, but describe uh, for just a moment maybe something you did. I'll give you an example. Back in the day when I was in high school, I had a, a paper route, and uh, I would get up very, very early, and uh, I would load up my bike at the time, and then later on my parents' car, 
with papers and I would go door to door and I would, uh, I would first wrap all the papers, then I would throw them on their door. And then uh, this tells you, this will date me a little bit, it was back when you actually then as the uh, person delivering the newspaper had to go and make collections on that. And so then once a month I would go and knock on the door, hi Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you owe me $27 this month for me delivering the newspapers, would you pay? Okay, you don't want to, I'll come back, thank you. And, uh, and so that was what I did for a while in high school to, uh, to make uh, ends meet, to have a little extra income, you get the idea. So share with someone, give you about 30 seconds to do it, uh, a place of employment you had or some role you played, go. Hopefully uh, you had a chance to reflect back on uh, some type of employment you had that may not have uh, been the most ideal for you. As I reflect back, uh, even this morning I was thinking about uh, a host of jobs I had in college. I was trying hard to work myself through college and uh, graduate uh, without debt. And so I took just about any job that was willing to be offered. I remember at one point near the college there was an affluent older lady that uh, lived kind of on this hill. She had a very large home and she paid for a student to just water her lawn. She didn't have like sprinklers. She just had me stand there literally for hours with a sprinkler watering the shrubs and the grass. And I was like, man, I'm just making some money, you know. Was, I did that. I remember uh, being a telemarketer back in the day. Yes, I uh, sold uh, sports memorabilia over the phone. Yes, uh, every night I would call, I would start, I grew up on the East Coast, so I would start making calls on the East Coast, and then as the night progressed, uh, we'd make our way all the way to the West Coast, so our final calls were like at 11 at night, so that you'd be getting a late call here. And uh, I would sell about, I averaged probably about $1,000 a night, in sports baseball cards and football cards and basketball cards and just a bunch of stuff that's probably sitting in someone's closet at this point. But we've all had those kind of crazy jobs, but every single job carries with it deep significance. We could talk for a while about the theology of work and the importance of uh, what it looks like to be a worker within the kingdom of God, but what Paul addresses in this text that I think is so important is he talks about the way in which you work. The way you relate to one another, specifically how employers relate to employees and how employees are supposed to relate to employers. If you look at the text, in 
through 9, he highlights a few things, and he specifically is relating or trying to answer this question. How should we conduct ourselves toward those whom we have responsibilities toward in the realm of work? As employees, how should we relate to our boss? How should we relate to those in authority? And the text says a few things. First thing it says is simply this, obedience. That as we are to obey those in authority over us, the literal definition of obedience in that text is in everything and at all times. Obviously, our, our first calling is obedience to Christ, but otherwise, we are to give willing obedience to our authorities. Uh, we're to submit to the authority, and this again is mission, we're to submit to the authority that God has placed over our lives. And so, if we think about it in the, in the context of work, uh, if you take a teacher, for example, they're supposed to submit to their principal. Principal would likely submit to the superintendent, and it would go up from there. Uh, as a worker, maybe you submit to a foreman, and then that foreman submits to the boss, or maybe there's layers of authority in between there. Uh, I know that we practice or seek to practice mutual submission on staff. So uh, I am submitting to other staff like Julie, and Kevin is submitting to Dave, and Dave, and we work together in a way where we submit to one another. And then our responsibility would be to submit to elders. And then elders are mutually submitting to one another, and then also deferring that responsibility onto those in leadership in uh, organizations we're a part of. And so there's always and should be this spirit of obedience. But what Paul does is he defines it. He describes it a little bit. And he says this, that it should always come first and foremost with the right attitude. So our obedience should be in fear and trembling, as the text says. Or another way of defining it would be honor and respect. That your obedience and my obedience in our occupation should carefully and faithfully. Not only that, that we should have sincerity of heart, that we should be genuine, to work with good spirit, to not be people who are complaining and criticizing, but rather to work with a genuine sense of sincerity in our hearts. He then goes on to describe not only that our attitude should look that way, but our motive should be to do our work as to Christ. What we should not simply be doing is doing it for the approval of others, but at the very center that we should be doing it for the will of God, that our service should be toward Christ. Four times you see this idea put forth in this section. It says, never work for men, but as Christians we should only be working for God. We can obviously follow our employer's direction, but do so under the authority of Christ. To not be people who are men-pleasers just trying to gain the approval of others, nor are we to be people who are working only when the boss is watching. So we kind of take a casual break. He or she comes in, and then we get back to work to appear as if we've been working the whole time. Paul is addressing our motives. In Colossians 3, it says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Paul transitions from 
talking about us as employees and moves to those of us who are employers. And he gives a, another challenge to this group of people. He says this, do the same things to them, meaning to use your authority as to the Lord. So that means to deal with your employees with respect and integrity and honesty and uprightness. It means that when you make business decisions, you don't just consider the welfare of the business, you consider the welfare of your employees, and you seek to do what would benefit them, take care of them, and represent them in the decisions you make for the business. Not only that, the ways in which you exercise your authority should be with fairness and respect. Paul goes on to define that and he says this, give up threatening. Stop being someone as a leader who threatens a boss, who threatens an employee. As often as possible, do not use your authority and your power to motivate. Don't use your title to be something that drives home the responsibility of the employee. Don't throw your weight around. Don't motivate by fear. Don't dangle carrots and create just incentives that are only driving people to excess. Instead, lead from values and not rules. And then our section ends with this idea. It says basically that God plays no favorites. So whether you are an employee or whether you are an employer, God will judge both according to the way in which they live. Prepare bosses to have your management judged, the way in which you care for your workers. As we know, God is not impressed with status. He's not really looking too much at your bank account. He could care less what car you drive. Or the fact that maybe people cower to your leadership, or maybe they run errands for you. What impresses him is the way in which you handle and love and respect those who work with and for you. In fact, it is he that said, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. Our text invites us as small groups this week to consider what does it mean to work well, but what does it mean to lead well? Well, uh, not one last announcement. It's just my pleasure to bring up uh, our speaker for this morning. Literally, one of the greatest people I've ever met in my entire life, Russ Davis. I am, uh, I am excited about our passage this morning. Uh, our passage carries with it a deep weight. What I mean by that is some to ignore the weight of the passage by speaking to topics such as relationships or addressing the passage as a discussion on the theology of the workplace. Our text, in many ways, has been one of the most destructive passages in the New Testament. If we're honest with ourselves, it has been used to both enslave and give freedom. It has been used to silence and restrict as well as to create a posture of hope. Through time, some of the worst atrocities perpetrated on humans have been linked to the institution of slavery, and yet 
Slavery is never denied in the Scriptures. At the time of this writing, this morning, it is estimated that in the slaves, in the life of the slave, sin but a thing. Aristotle said it this way: "Slave is a living tool, just as a tool inanimate slave." Vero, writing on agreements into three classes: the articulate, the inarticulate, and the mute. The articulate comprised of the slaves; the inarticulate cattle and the mute, the vehicles. In essence, the slave is no better than a beast who happens to be able to talk. In law, in Rome, it is very clear the status of a slave. A Roman lawyer writing in the Institutes states this, that it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over the slave. Another writer from Rome made this statement, whatever a master does undeservedly, in anger, willingly, unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly, unknowingly, is judgment, justice, and law. And this passage this morning strikes this very practice, and yet it has long been used to propagate slavery. At the same time that we heard statements like this, four score and seven years ago, our father, forefathers brought a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. We also heard this statement, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Or, tell slaves to be submissive to their masters and to give satisfaction in every respect. You had men such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, great preachers of the gospel, owning slaves, while at the same time, William and others said things like, so enormous, so dreadful, so irredeemable did the slaves' trade's wickedness appear My own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they were. I'm determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. Never, never will we desist till we have scandal from the Christian name, from the and extinguished every race of this bloody traffic. The question is, what do we do with a passage like this? We could simply ignore it. We could talk about relationships. We could talk about theology of the workplace and the ways we treat employees and the ways we work as employers. Virtually, still quote the Bible slavery. And yet, I think relatively few Christians. Taking the time to 
have taken the time to analyze the method of interpreting the Bible that has allowed slave owners to use it in such a way and at the same time has allowed others to use it to describe freedom. Some suggest that the way that we should look at the text would be to consider that the Bible was only what it was concerned with and what it was not concerned with. What I mean by that is to suggest that the Bible's concern was not with overturning society at the time, but was living as a follower in the, the way of Jesus in the midst of the culture at hand. Uh, so what Paul does is he does not give his particular opinion about the idea of slavery, but instead says, in the midst of the society that exists, here's how we operate as followers of Jesus.